Well, friends, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. I think that what we're going to do this morning is just do a, a survey in one sense through, uh, through the book. As far as we make it, we'll see. Uh, whatever sees, seems appropriate, we'll trust the Lord in this. What we need today and every day is good news, and Romans certainly is clear about the good news. And so I have no notes, obviously, uh, and we're going to just look at God's word together, consider it together, and rejoice in what's here. All right, so let's go to the Lord and pray. We need his help all the time. We need it right now. Let's pray together. He's faithful to give us his spirit. We pray, Father, now that you would come, that you would minister to us in our weakness and in our neediness. We come to your word expecting that you will show up and that you will teach us, that you will show us yourself from your word, that you will show us ourselves as we really are, that you will show us the good news of your son. We pray that as we consider Christ and what he has accomplished for us today, that regardless of how we might feel, that we would know that we are in him by faith, that you are the good and just God who justifies the ungodly, that we would know that we have peace with you in, in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for giving us your spirit so that we might know the truth. We pray for you to be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I certainly don't really have introductory comments, friends. I think what I would like to do is start in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. We're not going to read every verse. I'm going to just kind of read some verses that are of import, make some comments. And what I hope this is, is an exercise in like high level reading of scripture, like looking at a large argument in the Bible. Because the way that Paul lays out Romans 1 on through, really, is incredible by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I think it's important for us to not get lost in the weeds as we do sometimes by staring at one verse, but to look at the flow of the large argument. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the large argument and we'll probably stop at certain points to just reflect together on the goodness of God in Christ and the gospel. And so again, we'll do this as long as it seems profitable. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. We're going to come to the table in faith. Romans 1 Verse 16, we'll just read these first two verses. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. The gospel is for everybody. Here we go, Jew and Greek alike. Verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That could be rendered there, friends, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or it could even say beginning and ending in faith. From faith to faith. It is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what we're thinking about is the righteousness of God counted to sinners, not by their own working, not by their merit, but by the grace of God through faith. And we're going to continue to think about this together. Beginning in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul, in these next, what, 14, 15 verses, 
makes some really ringing indictments on the human race, like wholesale. These are strong words about the wrath of God that has been revealed against the wickedness of mankind. I'm not going to read all of these things, but we'll just look at some of this together. For the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. All men are culpable. All men are responsible before God for our wickedness because we in unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what the text says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Men are idolaters by nature. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. He's right. Then we get this, giving over language. Therefore, God gave them over. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about this verse and it's like a word to America. Like America, watch out. If we don't get it in line, then God's going to give us over. I, I just immediately want to say like, hold the phone. Like God has already done this. God has given mankind over to the lusts of our hearts. He has given us over to sin, to our wicked desires. He has done that. In his righteousness and justice, he has left us and given us over to debauchery of all kinds, which we're going to read about. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. We see that one of the first places that our corruption shows up is in the bedroom. That's real. That's real talk. Every human being is perverted sexually. That's a demonstration of our corruption and our fallenness. Verse 28, moving forward. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, here we go, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Listen to these words. This is you and me and every human being in our natural fallen state. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Such is the predicament of fallen mankind. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He's essentially going to tell us God is a righteous judge. So here's, here's the reality. We're going to talk about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for all, the Jew first and the Greek. From it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
All right, so that's the big header. And now he launches into a treatise in one sense on how wicked and corrupt humanity is. And now he's going to remind us of the justness of God. Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. That's all of us. We all do. We all make evaluations, right? For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What he's saying is you have a standard that you hold others to that you yourself can never meet. So you are making judgments because it's what we do and you fail to meet your own standard. In, in doing that, you condemn yourself. Romans 2, verse 2, here we go. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? There's a point. You don't live up to your own standard, and if you don't live up to your own standard, how in the world will you escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Oh, God, he's gracious. He's kind. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. It's meant to lead you to Christ. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, these next few verses are absolutely essential. So Robert Haldane is a reformed commentator who made the statement, I think he's right, you leave Romans 2, 6 through 11. I would even say maybe 6 through 13. You leave it either a Protestant or a Roman Catholic. There is no middle ground. So we're going to talk about this for a minute. We're going to look at it together. Verse 6. He, God, will render to each one according to his works. Praise be to his name. He is a righteous judge. Verse 7. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. He's going to give eternal life to those who do good. Verse eight, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. He's going to punish those who do evil. Verse nine, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Okay, pause button. This is critical for us. When you read those verses and you see God's going to reward those who do good with eternal life. God is going to punish in wrath all of those who do evil. What that does not mean is that there is some mysterious way in which your works are factored into your salvation. It can't be. And we're going to think about why it doesn't mean that. Because some brothers in the faith that I respect even will make such a statement that there is a mysterious way that our works will factor into our final justification, our final salvation. We might be justified by faith, but we will be finally saved by faith plus works. It is said that. The question is, what is Paul doing? What's he doing in the flow of the argument? God rewards those who do good with eternal life. He punishes those who do evil with hell and wrath and judgment. It becomes clear as his argument moves forward. That reality stands, and the problem is nobody's good. Right? That's the key. 
God does reward those who do good with eternal life. He does punish those who do evil with wrath and hell. And the problem is nobody's good. Everybody's wicked. Let's skip over just a few verses to Romans 3, 9. He's going to talk about Jew and Greek from like chapter 2 and verse 12 on over, asking if the Jew has an advantage and the like. But then his conclusion, verse 9 of the matter about all human beings. What then? Romans 3, 9. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all when it comes to the end of the matter, right? For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one, Paul, not even one, bro. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's the venom of vipers, right? Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Here we are. Human beings are corrupt. God is a righteous judge. He rewards those who do good. He punishes those who do evil. The promise or the problem is, excuse me, that nobody's good. And therefore, under God's just and righteous and holy standard, there is no one who would ever have eternal life. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, the whole world is under the law. The law is the standard. Verse 20. If there was any doubt, for by works of the law, no human being, no flesh, will be justified, that is declared righteous, in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law shows you your sin. The law exposes you and me. It crushes us. Then some of the greatest verses in all the Bible. Romans 3, 21 and following. Paul has set the table. This brilliant argument by the inspiration of the Spirit. Everybody's damned, Paul. Like, how... How's this good news, bro? Here he goes. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets, that means the Old Testament, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's the good news. This is how a sinner could ever be made right with God. How a sinner could ever be justified. In God's presence. For there is no distinction amongst all the human race, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. It's given, it's not earned. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Jesus was put forward as a sacrifice an atoning sacrifice to pay for sin. He was put forward as a propitiatory sacrifice, meaning to satisfy the wrath and righteousness of God. 
Christ was crushed for our sake. He was wounded for our transgressions. By his stripes were healed, right? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So what that's alluding to is the fact that God had allowed humanity and the world to continue after sin entered the world. We tend to have a posture like, why do bad things happen? The scripture often has a very different perspective. Like, God, where is your righteousness? You read the Old Testament, you read the psalmists, and they'll say this. Like, God, where is your holiness? Where's your righteousness? Now, they're, they're thinking that they're okay. Like, we're God's covenant people, and the nations are ungodly, and they're not righteous. God, where is your righteousness? Where's your holiness? God, in his forbearance, had passed over former sins. He had allowed hum- humanity to continue. This is a demonstration as well, friends, that every saint, whether living before Christ came or living after Christ came, God saves them all this way. Jesus is offered as a sacrifice and those who lived before him were saved and God passed over their sins knowing that Christ was coming. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness, not just in the past, right? in terms of how he dealt with his people graciously. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The gospel is amazing. God's righteousness and holiness are vindicated and upheld in every way. They are compromised not at all. And wretches like you and me are justified. It's unbelievable. Then what becomes of our boasting, Paul asks? It is excluded. By what kind of law, he says? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. Because see, if it depended upon your works at all, if it depended upon your merit in any degree, you would have something to boast about. That's the argument. But as it stands, you've got nothing to boast about. Because it's a gift. It's grace. It's all of Christ. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Skip down to chapter 4 and verse 1. We're just going to keep moving along. He said that we don't overthrow the law by faith. We're going to get to that perhaps more in a moment. Chapter 4 and verse 1 reads this way. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So he's going to argue from redemptive history. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? He cites Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, here's the thing. Verse four, he's going to unpack it for us. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who works, he gets paid what he has earned. To the one who works, He gets paid what he is owed. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he cites Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
We've thought about this before as a church. The Christian religion, the biblical Christian religion, is different from any other religion in the world because of what is said right there in Romans 4, 5. It is the only religion in the world that would make such a statement that God justifies the ungodly. That is utterly unique. He justifies ungodly people. So this is contra Judaism, right, where there is seen to be a merit-based understanding of righteousness. This is contra Islam. This is contra Roman Catholicism, where we are told that we cooperate with God. We cooperate with the grace of God, and thereby we are saved. The idea in all of these schemas is that you've got to do something. Like you've got to get yourself at least part of the way there. You've got to clean yourself up somewhat. You've got to make yourself presentable, wash off the most dirty parts, and then perhaps God will be happy to save you. But the book says that God justifies ungodly people, to which we say amen because that's what we are. So we're going to move forward. There's lots of good stuff in chapter four, but I just want us to keep kind of trucking through these high level arguments that Paul is making. He's arguing from redemptive history that Abraham is a model of this justification apart from works by faith in the promises of God. Some in the room might be wondering, okay, well, brother, what do we make of the book of James? I'll make a brief comment. James chapter two, where we will read that Abraham was not justified by faith, but he was justified by works right? James is talking about faith and works. He's saying, I'll show you my faith by my works. He talks about Abraham and says, surely we see that Abraham was justified by what he did. Two comments. One, the word rendered justified is rendered elsewhere in the New Testament as vindicated. That matters a lot. To say that Abraham was vindicated by his works, okay. But even without that, even if we're going to leave the word justified by his works, what does it mean in the context? What is the work in James chapter 2 that James points to that Abraham was justified by? It was the sacrifice of Isaac. Right? So he says that Abraham was justified by works when he sacrificed his son or was willing to. The thing with that is that Abraham had been declared righteous decades earlier by faith in the promises of God. Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it's counted to him as righteousness. It's not until Genesis 22, 40 years later, that he is prepared to sacrifice Isaac. And James points to that and says, Abraham was justified in what he did there. So we would clearly see that what James is arguing for is not works-based salvation. He is pointing to the work of God in Abraham's life as evidence and as a vindication of his justification. I'll save the rest of it for a sermon series through James, but I hope that's minimally helpful. We're going to move forward. Romans 5 and verse 1. This is a phenomenal chapter of Scripture. We begin with these words. Therefore, because of all of this, like Jesus was delivered over for our sins and raised for our justification, we've been justified completely by faith in Christ as a gift. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a refrigerator-worthy verse if I've ever seen one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, like it's done, 
We have, like it's ours, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not chasing after peace with God. So often, at least in my own experience, I'll at least speak autobiographically, the way that the scripture was taught, especially in my young life, was very different than this. It's like you need to be doing all of these things in order to have peace with God. That puts the cart before the horse, right? We as believers, according to scripture, we live from our justification. We live from it, not for it, right? We live from our identity in Christ, not chasing after an identity in Christ. It makes a world of difference. Status forward, justified. That's the reality. That's the baseline. And now we talk about the Christian life. In Christ. We're going to think about that in a second. You're in Christ. And now let's talk about obedience and sanctification and how the Spirit of God will do that. Assurance. This has been said many times by others and by me. Assurance is the essence of the Christian life. It's the baseline. It's not the pursuit of the Christian life. This will change the game. Like, if you're wrestling, like, how in the world do freedom and peace and joy and safety fit with obedience and holiness and all these things? This is the answer. God pronounces us just. He tells us who we are. He tells us what our identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us his Holy Spirit and tells us that we will be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. And he tells us many good things in his word in terms of how we're to live. And we obey not out of fear, not because we're trying to earn something. We obey in one sense because we can. We have God's spirit in us. We obey because we love God. We obey because we're grateful. We obey because we're safe. Safety is a motivator. Who knew? Right? It breaks the human brain. Like at a human philosophical level, we only tend to see motivations for obedience being fear and being merit. It's because of the legal spirit that's hardwired in our DNA. And then you remove fear of punishment, you remove merit, and we're like, well, I guess we just won't obey anymore. This was sin. It's not what the book says. It's a totally different reorientation of life, according to Scripture. We go back to the text. Verse 2, through him we all have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice. Here's, here's some profound stuff. We rejoice in our sufferings. So because we know we have peace with God, it affects how we can handle suffering. We have peace with God. And therefore, when life is terrible, it's a help to us. It doesn't take the pain away. It doesn't make it easy, but it gives us perspective because we say, okay, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For 
while we were still weak, like lest there be any doubt how this happened. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We've been justified. We will be finally saved by him, not by you, by him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved, excuse me, by his life. Well, what does that mean? We're going to think about that some more. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Then we get to Romans 5, 12 through 21, where we're going to think about the two covenant heads in the history of the Bible, Adam and Jesus. The human race was created, Adam as the head of the human race, the representative in that sense of all mankind. And then we'll think about the second Adam who came later, who would also be the representative of all of his people. So we see in verse 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned. This is how we know that sin was there. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So we're setting up this argument. Death came through Adam. Corruption came through Adam. Death reigned because sin reigned from Adam on forward. But the free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is Jesus and the gospel. The trespass is Adam's fall. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So this is a big verse because Paul's going to pick up on this argument even in the next chapter. Where there was sin, there was more grace that came through Christ. As big of a deal, if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. By that one man's one transgression, everything was wrecked. Now by the obedience of one, that cancels out all the sin of all of his people of all time. Holy smokes. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So Adam's sin, death reigned through him as the representative of the human race, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We're given Christ's righteousness. This is the term used, imputation. The righteousness and record of Jesus, his perfect obedience to the law, his perfect life, is literally counted to us by faith as our record. Therefore, as one trespass, verse 18, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life 
for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. There you get it again. Christ obeying. And we, his people, are made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Here, you keep hearing that language of grace abounding. There's all this sin, but there's more grace in Christ. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God. Now, we're getting, I'm not going to go too much longer. I just kind of want to give us a few thoughts from Romans 6, a few quick thoughts from Romans 7, and we'll probably conclude with Romans 8.1, just to give you a roadmap. Here we go. Romans 6.1, Paul anticipates an objection. He anticipates an objection that would be raised to this gospel message. All right, you're telling me that there's more grace in Christ than there is sin in us and that where there's sin, there's just more grace. That's what you're saying. That it's a free gift, it's by faith, we can't earn anything, it's over. That's what you're saying, Paul. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Okay, what shall we say then? Romans 6.1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Oh, it's the age-old objection to the gospel. You can't tell people it's over. You can't tell people it's done and finished. It's all of faith. It's nothing of them. They can't earn it. You can't tell them that because then this is going to be what happens. Lawlessness abounds. Nobody's going to give a rip about holiness. Nobody's going to obey because you tell them it's over. Paul responds. By no means, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. How does Paul respond to the objection of lawlessness? The human instinct would be are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Human response, by no means, here's a list of rules. By no means, here's what you do and here's what you don't do. By no means, here's the law. What does he do? He doesn't respond with law. He doesn't respond with rules. He responds with union with Christ by faith. This is a big thing for us. So should we sin all the more that grace may abound? By no means, because you have been united to Jesus. You're in Christ now. Like, you are no longer, like if you skip forward over to verse 12, let not sin, this Romans 6, 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You have been set free from bondage to sin. The presence of sin still remains. The power and dominion of sin has been destroyed. You are in Christ. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. You've been set free from the dominion of sin. By no means would we keep sinning. We obey because we can in Christ and because it's good for us. It's amazing. The gospel 
And this message of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, propels and drives obedience. Verse 17, just to reiterate. And we'll go to verse 15. What then, verse 15, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Here's this same objection. By no means, Paul says. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But here's the kicker, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Whoa. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. That is your identity now. Paul will go on in the early verses of Romans 7 to talk about how we have been set free from the law in terms of its bondage, in terms of its reigning over us to condemn us, right? We've been set free in that sense. Romans 7, 7. What shall we say? What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Because Paul, you're talking about we've been set free from the law. Like, is the law bad? Paul says, by no means. The law is not bad. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us, he says. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin because the law exposes it. It tells me what it is. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. What commandments are those? It's where God says, obey these things and live. Do this and you'll live. The commandment that offered me life became death to me because I couldn't do it. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? That's again the law. Did the law bring death? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual but I am of the, of the flesh, sold under sin. Now he's going to talk about his own experience. He's talking about his life and what he battles. He's already acknowledged that the law in all of its holiness condemns everyone. Life is offered in the Mosaic covenant, like obey this and live. It's just like the covenant of works that was issued to Adam. If you do these things, it will go well for you. It brought death though, because nobody keeps the law. And even now, he's going to talk about his experience in a present sense. I don't understand my own actions, he says. How, how deep-seated is sin? How big of a deal is this? How real is the internal war? Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. You've been, we've just been told that we have been counted righteous in Christ by faith. We've been told that we have been born again and raised to walk in newness of life, that we are in Christ Jesus. That's our new identity now. And now he's going to talk to us about our new war. The new war that we have. We've got a new identity. We've got a new war. He says, for I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
It's just like Galatians 5.17, where Paul says basically the same thing. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is the reality of the born-again person. You have your inner man that wants to obey, and you have the reality of your flesh and your corruption and indwelling sin. For I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do what, or excuse me, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. If I am saying that the stuff I keep doing is bad, I'm agreeing with God's law that it is sin. You see that? God's law is good. Because God's law shows sin. And I'm agreeing with God's law by saying, I don't want to do this bad stuff because it's bad. So now it is no longer I who do it. I meaning the inner man, the new man, but sin that dwells within me, my old man, the flesh. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. It's real. You've been there? I've been there. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. He's just reiterating the fact that the spirit and the flesh are real and they wage war. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Amen, somebody. I delight in the law of God in my inner man. I look at the word of God. I look at the law of God and I say it is good. It is right. It is perfect. It is holy. I want to do it. But I see in my members, that is in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Again, my inner man, right? But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God. It's the gospel, man. And he's going to go on in the rest of Romans 8 to talk about life in the Holy Spirit. How the Spirit now indwells us and he's doing all these good works in us. He's given us a spirit of adoption, not a spirit of fear. You know, we now call God Father. The Spirit, like the creation's groaning and we're groaning. We're waiting for the redemption of our bodies. The Spirit intercedes for us when we don't even know what to pray. God will keep us. He's working all things for our eternal good, right? He's going to conform us to the image of Christ. All those whom he's called, he's going to justify. He's going to glorify. And then, as you guys know, Romans 8, 31 and following is nothing's ever going to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. It's remarkable stuff. The gospel is the greatest news in the world. It's what we come for every week to hear the good news from the scripture and to behold Christ from the word. Praise God that it depends not at all on you or me. If it depended upon you in any way or me in any measure, there would be no hope and there would be no salvation. There is therefore now no condemnation though 
for those who are in Christ Jesus completely by faith, apart from works. And then as his spirit indwells us and as we live life in the church and we apply the means God has given, like the word and like prayer and like song and sacrament, God is faithful to sanctify. He will surely do it. Your sanctification is just as certain as your justification and your glorification. There is rest in Christ Jesus by faith. So let's pray and then we're going to come to the table together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it depends not at all on some human being's eloquence, that we would gain something from this time. Father, we trust that you have taken your word today and that you by your spirit have taught us from it. We thank you for the promises of the gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, very personally for coming and fulfilling the law for us, for dying for us and for taking your life up again. We thank you and praise you that you intercede for us even now at the throne of God. We do pray, Father, that by your spirit, you would continue to minister to us this morning as we come to the Lord's table. Use this supper that you have ordained and given us to sustain and strengthen our faith. We pray that we would be aware of our sin, that we would confess it as is appropriate. We pray that we would love each other even as we lock arms together to come to the table as a church. We pray that we would feed on Jesus Christ by faith. We pray that you would continue to transform us into his likeness. And we pray that you would keep doing all of this good work for our good, but ultimately for your glory and for the praise of your son. We pray all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.